The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop sending personal tweets to Bill and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 518 of my .NET story, recorded live Wednesday, January 20th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who's looking like a fool with his pants on the ground, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to a very special .NET Rocks. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? I'm well. This is going to be an interesting show because this is where we're announcing the winners of the My .NET Story Contest, and we'll get to see what, what else is going on in the real world, development-wise. Yeah, and the response for the uh, contest was amazing, but uh, you'll hear that from the various folks that were involved. All I'm saying is somebody's getting a smart car or going to the Galapagos, and it's not me. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with being involved with all these contests. We never get to win anything. So I feel like Alton Brown in Iron Chef, he, he gets to sit there and talk, but he can't eat anything. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. get to eat anything. Exactly. That's always... How many times have we given away cool prizes, Zune HDs and Xboxes? We never get any of that stuff. I want one of them. Come on. <laughs> all right, let's uh, jump into Better Know Framework today. All right. Better Know Framework... Uh, Shine a little light on a little dark corner of the .NET framework. Hopefully, you'll learn something over time. Uh, today, I'm talking about System.Windows, which, as you know, is WPF land. System.Windows.ContentElement. So, uh, a content element is related to a UI element. It, it provides a WPF core-level base class for content elements, which are designed for flow-style presentation using an intuitive markup-oriented layout model and a deliberately simple object model. Cool. So here's what the remarks say. Content element defines the following common content characteristics. For input, all content element derived classes provide support for basic input capture from keyboard, mouse, drag and drop operations, stylus controls, and accelerators. For focus, all content element derived classes are potentially focusable, and we talked about focus before. However, the default focusable state for the content element-based class is false. Uh, for events, content element includes events that are related to input in focus. It also includes events for changes in state. Um, in many cases, the content element events are routed events. In some cases, routed events have both tunneling and bubbling routing strategies raised as separate events in response to the same state or condition. Also, content element defines APIs that can raise routed events and that can add or remove handlers to events. And this is a good comment here. Content element shares many common APIs with UI element. 
These common APIs do not come from a shared class inheritance, but they do share some common naming, similar behavior, and similar internal implementation of APIs in each class. Interesting. The similarity is because content element and UI element are each classes that are an element base, although each has different intentions for its markup object model behavior. In particular, UI element descends from visual, which provides the lower level graphic support for rendering a content element to a rectangular region within a composited window, whereas content element defers rendering so that concepts more common to document scenarios such as flow and wrapping are more easily supported. Cool. So maybe if you know one, you're pretty close to knowing the other. Right. But they do have these subtle differences. Yeah. And in particular, if you're doing any kind of flow, you, you know what it's like. You go to a website and everything's done in tables, right? And it, yeah. And it takes, a, it takes a little time for that table to render before it gets presented. Yeah. Makes sense. So who's yakking at us? Oh, I got a good one for you. The subject is The Big Questions, Scott Hunter and Show 511. Dear Carl and Richard, I just finished listening to Show 511 with Scott Hunter on ASP.NET 4.0. <laughs> I was thrilled with the new feature list. The changes to ASP.NET to handle CSS panes, the templating panes, and the routing panes are all causes to jump for joy. Yeah. What I didn't hear you ask was the big question. What about SharePoint? I can use a different view engine to cover many of the rendering items on my own sites, but SharePoint is just a big black box of pain. Oh, ow. I just finished a SharePoint rebranding project, and I can't recount to you how many expletives the designer was using when I told him that I had absolutely no control over the markup. Oh, sure, we can change the CSS, but you better get a thick rug out and pray that the modified CSS classes are not used anywhere else. I'm still waiting to get over the, quote, gag factor that Sahil Malik mentioned. So I think it's time you had one of the SharePoint PMs on the show and thoroughly grill him. I mean, inquire of him how they are making SharePoint markup generation more developer friendly. P.S. I already have a mug, so a trip to the Galapagos Islands would be good. <laughs> right show to read that email. Yeah, on, very but, good. Uh, a little too thanks late. from John Brown from Annapolis, Maryland. You know, John, I would give the SharePoint guys credit for this. 4.0 just shipped. Yeah. They can't start building SharePoint on it until it works. It's better. I, th I think it'd still be better still. And, and there's no question. Of, I mean, I don't think 2010 is built on 4.0. There's no way. No, it's not. You know, you got to think about the order of development here. So, of course, they're going to be a couple generations behind. But, I mean, SharePoint's a huge success. Yeah, it is. And it's getting a lot of attention. I think it's only going to get better. But... Yeah, I, I can't argue with his basic point. It's very challenging. You know, reskinning SharePoint sites is not for the faint of heart. That's it. And I guess since John, since you already got a mug, I'll send you a t-shirt this time around. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. And the t-shirt's going to read, uh, some guy went to the Galapagos and all he gave me was this lousy shirt. Because <laughs> unfortunately, John is not going to the Galapagos. Not, but we're going to find John. out who is today. All right, Richard. Well, we got a job to do here. Yes, we do. And I've uh, I've done a block of interviews for this to sort of go through the whole experience of uh, my .NET story, the contest, and uh, and and these final uh, uh, winners. So first, a little backstory. The backstory is that Microsoft um, wanted to have this contest to show off what people are doing in the real world with .NET, and uh, people would submit their uh, projects. They would write a little uh, white paper about them and then do a demo and submit a demo. And it was up to three of us, uh, Scott Hanselman, Matt Winkler, and myself to pick and to actually, we didn't pick, we rated each of them. And uh, we went through, we looked at their applications and we gave them ratings based on a whole bunch of different criteria. Uh, and basically let the, numbers speak for themselves and besides the judges there was also a set of people choice winners too so people were actually able to vote on the my.net story website on the apps they like the most exactly so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to interviews that you did richard yes with the three runners up the finalists the finalists yeah let me say that again okay so what we're going to do here is we're going to hear interviews that you did, Richard, with the three finalists. 
and uh, we'll get to hear a little bit about what they did, and and then we're going to announce the People's Choice winner, and then we're going to announce the winner winner. And before we go into talking to the finalists, I have an interview with uh, Marjane Kalatar, and she was the one who did a lot of the organizational work around the, the contest. It's, it's not any one person that makes these things work, but Marjane was our, a point person for making this uh, contest possible. I'm chatting with Marjane Kalantar. Marjane, what was your role in my .NET story? I was the, actually the person behind this contest. I'm a product manager with the .NET Framework team. And it looks like you got piles and piles of submissions, and from all over the world as well. Quite quite a diversity of apps. Exactly, and that was the most exciting part of this contest. Yeah, it's amazing to see what folks are doing with .NET. It's it's never what you expect. I've had a chance to talk with all the finalists now, and and uh, really a diverse group of folks are doing stuff with .NET that I hadn't thought of. Exactly, and that was actually our hope when we started this effort back towards the end of last year. Our hope was to show the diversity of the platform, to show that .NET can be built to address different types of business needs and it can work on different types of screens, and it can integrate with other tools and technologies. And as we asked for the submissions, we, in on honestly, we didn't know what kind of submissions we were going to get. And the results of, are really interesting, and they really show the different types of applications that can be built. I, I'm personally glad I didn't have to be a judge. We'll get a chance to talk to the judges a little later on, but it must have been very challenging to choose between the different apps. Yeah, and I also wanted to thank our judges. They really had a challenging task. Um, they used a very um, formal, actually, scoring criteria. They looked at the technical difficulties, the reach of the application across multiple screens, how unique that solution was, and the type of business value that it brought to the customer. And it was certainly not an in, uh, not a very easy task, given the really the different types of applications that they received. And, and ultimately, this results in a, a big pile of case studies for you, right? Like these are all examples of .NET applications. Exactly. So, as, as I mentioned earlier, some of them are already available on .NETstories.com, but we are going to be publishing um, several uh, more stories, and they're actually going to all be available on Microsoft.com. Right, I, and I, I see now that the, the my.net story site is already linking to microsoft.com slash net slash case studies uh, to take you to all these case studies that are there. So I, I can't imagine that you all of them are going to be case studies, but it looks like many of them. Many of them will be. We got a lot of nominations in, so it's, it's not really possible to publish them all, but a good number of them will be published. Pretty, yeah, pretty exciting stuff. So we, is this going to be a routine thing? Do you see another contest in the future? In general, um, we do run contests on a regular basis, a couple of contests per year. That's really exciting. Well, Marjan, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing all these nominations on the 21st on the contest site. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's roll the first interview that you did with Ian Mercer. Ian Mercer did a home automation application that is just, uh, I was speechless when I saw this. Now, you know, he didn't get a lot of points for business value from me anyway. Right. Uh, I'm sure the other judges as well because, you know, it's a home automation thing. But there was no stone left unturned. I mean, this, this was a really challenging project. Well, Let's roll the interview, and you can hear Ian tell you about it in his own words. I'm talking to Ian Mercer. And Ian, who do you work for? I work for myself, actually. I'm an entrepreneur. A self-employed fellow. What sort of work do you do? I'm in the process of doing a new startup called SignSwift, which is a digital signage solution for small business. SignSwift. Sounds cool. And is that going to be .NET as well? It's 100% .NET, and yeah, we're using Microsoft BizSpark, which is just an awesome program for startups. Oh, yeah. BizPark basically gives you all your licenses for free for a certain length of time. There's, there's a bunch of rules around it. but There's a bunch of rules, but it's long enough to get going and know whether you've got a business, and then you can start paying. Absolutely. Well, that's, that sounds awesome. So how long have you been developing in .NET? Uh, about six years, I think. That's, that's most of it. It's only been around for maybe 10. So, uh, And 
this is an application around uh, creating the world's smartest house. And as we were getting set up here, your house was speaking to you. That's right, yes. The uh, actual entry for the competition um, has nothing to do with the business that I'm starting. It's a project I've actually been working on for probably about five years, which is um, trying to make a, the smartest house, a home automation system. And so you've got to be an X10 junkie. Uh, it has some X10 in it, yeah. I've <laughs> tried most of the different uh, power line protocols for controlling lighting. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, always always challenged. You, you're talking to the right guy because I'm a I'm into home automation as well, but I don't think I've done the kind of work you've been doing here. So you're actually using .NET four as part of your house. Yeah. So um, as well as controlling the home, this is also sort of a project where I try out the latest and greatest stuff all the time. So recently, I moved everything over to Visual Studio 2010 and .NET four, and, and that was a great experience. I was able to rip out a lot of code that you just don't need anymore actually simplified your application as a consequence. Yeah, absolutely. For example, uh, you know, the lazy loading in Entity Framework 4, that means you just have to write less code, does it for you. That's Yeah, it's great. I mean, ultimately, if we don't have to write the code, we don't have to own it, right? Take care you don't of have it. to maintain it. You don't have to, yeah. <laughs> so when we talk about house, house automation, obviously lighting, but what else? Oh, well, what doesn't it do? Um, it controls the lighting, the heating, it has sensors on doors, windows, strain gauges under the floor, uh, driveway sensor can tell you a car's coming, hooks up to a whole variety of web services. It can tell you if the traffic's bad into Bellevue today. It can tell you what the weather forecast is going to be. Hooks up to podcasts, pulls us down the latest .net, .net rock show, tells me when it's <laughs> available, and I can just type in play, and away it goes. I'm sorry, strain gauges in the floor? Yeah, Um so instead of having motion sensors everywhere, which are kind of ugly, right. it actually has strain gauges uh, glued onto the beams under the floor so it can tell where you're standing and walking around. So that's how you detect if someone enters a room? Um, well, it uses all of the sensors to tell whether somebody's in the room. So it'll look at the strain gauges, it'll look at the doors, it'll look at whether you've touched the volume control on the TV because the amplifiers are all connected as well. Right. So you know, even if you sat in the chair not moving, if you ever touch the volume control, it knows you're in that room. If you use the phone in that room, it knows you're in that room. Um, so the idea being that by really understanding where everybody is in the house, it's actually able to make smart decisions and go around turning lights off and turning the heating down. Oh, interesting. So you, you mean there's a, there's a whole green element to this as well, that you're shutting down rooms that people aren't in. There is a definite green element to this. And um, I've plotted my energy consumption over the last few years, and I'm, I'm down 30% now. Um, and it keeps coming down as I keep making improvements. And it saves, you know, the lighting is a big thing, but uh, the heating as well. And you don't have to tell the house that you're going away. I mean, a lot of people have home automation systems where, you know, big button, home or away. Right. Like, well, to me, that's a dumb automation system. If you have to tell it, um, you know, it's not smart. A yeah. smart home should figure out where you are um, and when you're coming back. And it should be able to, you know, do optimum start on the heating. So, for example, in the morning, when the heating comes on, it doesn't just bang the heating on at 5 o'clock because it would always take, you know, several hours to get up to temperature. It actually looks at the temperature and it ramps it up gradually such that it reaches the right temperature at the right time and not before. It doesn't heat it for an extra hour in the morning that you don't need. And in the, in the, you know, in the springtime and the fall, it'll actually look at the forecast for the weather and it'll go, hey, it's not even worth heating it for that one hour this morning. It'll be up to temperature by 10 o'clock anyway. So, you know, you can suffer 68 degrees for a an hour. Right, so a bright, sunny, if it's going to be a nice, sunny day, the the, heat, the sun will warm up the house itself. Yeah, so, yeah, why bother blipping the heating on in the morning if the sun's going to do that job for you? Interesting. So, there's a trade-off between comfort and, you know, energy saving, and finding the right balance has been one of the challenges. So, where does .NET come into play with this? Because I thought a lot of this stuff already existed. Oh, I tried all of the commercial home automation software, and uh, none of it was smart enough. Um, None of it had a, you know, gave you the full power of the .NET language to, to write constructs, to do smart things. Um, so, you know, most of it was like, you know, if, then, else, you know, do this. It was didn't have a very long memory, and it uh, was just very simple programming. You're really just basic macro programming. I, yeah. I, th I think the concept of room occupancy, I mean, people have been trying to solve this 
concept for quite a while with various kinds of sensors and things. So, I mean, actually doing a good job of that isn't that trivial. I can't think of anybody who's, I mean, what you just described off the cuff there, checking if you use the phone, is this essentially there's a timer for a room that we look for any activity in that room for a certain duration? Exactly, yeah. It'd look for any activity in that room. And in some cases, it'd look at neighboring rooms as well. It understands the whole hierarchy of the house and which rooms are on which floors and which rooms are adjacent to each other rooms. And it can use all of that to figure out when to put the lights off. I mean, it took several years to get that right. Right. The algorithms there, um, you know, there's the wife acceptance factor. And uh, it crossed the point about three years ago when it became something that she would complain if it wasn't working, yeah. as opposed to complaining when it was working. That's an interesting truism, isn't it? You've got to get to a point where when it doesn't work, they're annoyed. I, yeah. I knew my, my PVR system worked right when they were annoyed that the show wasn't there. Exactly. So do you actually do the lights on as they come into the room? Like, are you, Have you made light switches obsolete? Uh, in some cases, yeah. Like when you walk upstairs, it'll turn the landing lights on ahead of you. When you walk down into the basement, it'll put the lights on down there before you get there. Right. Um, but, but yeah, and then some of the lights will come on automatically if you move in that area and it's the evening time. But mostly, it, mostly its job is to turn lights off. I find that people are actually very good at turning lights on, but very poor at turning them off. Right. Or at least kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's the other element of this is the children's side of things that them not remember to turn lights off and and uh, the the waste there is so is it mainly when it comes to the green side of this it's the lighting and the HVAC that have the biggest impact yeah lighting and the HVAC for um, the power saving absolutely are you heading down the path I, I see this very hip these days of sort of the smart grid thing of instrumenting individual appliances and knowing where your power consumption is going. Yeah, so my home knows that because it's controlling most of it. I mean, you know, a couple of things like the fridge, it doesn't know, but they're pretty much a static load anyway. Right. Um, and so it can actually do, a, do all these graphs showing you how much power you're using at each time of day. It can t- show you where the power consumption is going. But um, really, that's not that interesting, I've found. It's, you know, it's better to have something that can actually do something about it and turn lights off and actually save energy. And most of your power is just having these lights on all the time. That's what that's what really kills you. That's what's actually consuming the most power. I, yep. I'm certainly that maybe I'm taking us a little off the path of the of the contest here. That uh, I'm certainly interested in this idea that we might have power rates adjusting over the course of a day, and we run things at the least expensive times, like dishwashers and washing machines and stuff like that. Yeah, and our local power company started down that path. They were going to have uh, differential pricing at different times of day, but then they dropped the experiment. Whereas in England, we've, you know, we've had that for 20 years. It's, it's called Economy 7 there, and everybody runs the dishwasher and washing machine at night. Right, right. Because it's much cheaper. It's the two-rate thing. It's during the day is one price and during the night is another. Yeah. And it, see, that seems pretty simple to me. I think it's surprising. It's incredibly simple. So... Uh, what are the technologies? I've got a basic list here. Obviously, we mentioned .NET 4, and you've used Entity Framework. Uh, any other technologies? Do you do a lot of remote access, web-related stuff, that kind of thing? Yeah, so it has a web interface, which is um, which was Web Forms, but I recently rewrote all that in ASP.NET MVC 2, hmm. um, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and it uses WCF to talk to that over an HTTP binding. Um, obviously uses Link. It uses SAPI for speech. I mean, the house talks to you and tells you if there's, you know, traffic problem or weather. Um, what else? It talks to all these different services. It uses, um, you know, call, it's calling XML services, SOAP calls and JSON services, using uh, data contract serialization to uh, pick apart the JSON responses coming back. Um, and what uses, are the services that you're pinging into? Is it like where you get your weather data from, that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's calling the national NOAA weather feed. Um, it's calling the WS dot traffic. In some cases, it's scraping web pages, but often there's a service call there. Um, it also uses an XMPP library. There's an open source one for .NET that um, means you can use chat. You can chat to it. And then it has a. It uses Log4Net for logging, TweetSharp, um, HTML agility pack. I've, wherever there's a good open source library, I've, I've tried to use it. Sort of coupled um, into it. I got to think the biggest challenge for you has got to be interfacing to some of the equipment. Things like you even talked about amplifiers and audio stuff and so forth, or even just a, a good communication layer between X10 and, and .NET. 
Yeah, and the challenge really with talking to the hardware is the fact that it's going to respond at random times. It's not like a web form where you just clock through and you're done. Yeah. Here you've got hundreds of devices, any of which can respond at any one time. So there's a threading issue. Um, so I actually have my own uh, thread pool, if you like. And unlike a normal work queue where you just put work items in, when you're dealing with hardware that you know, may or may not respond in time, you don't want to keep... If you're trying to ramp, ramp in the volume, you don't want to send volume one, volume two, volume three, volume four, because the device might not respond in time. You might have to go from volume one to volume four. Right. So I have this queue where newer items coming in can kick out any items that were waiting around. It's kind of more of a European queue than an American queue, if you like. Where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as, <laughs> not as orderly. So you've got a queue that's essentially messages that need to be acted on within the system, like sending IR signals for changing volume. And when a new volume signal comes in, it'll take a peek through the queue and say, if there's other volume signals for this device, you might as well boot them out because I win. Exactly, yeah. So it has, you know, in addition to the normal queue one of these, it has queue only one of these, and then you give it a key, and it will kick out anything else that's got that same key. Interesting, yeah. Very clever. Yeah. And it's um, actually a lot of it, the way it's... I've also had this kind of fluent interface where you can have a, you know, kitchen.floor.then... Um, so you can define it almost in an English language format. And it's it's looking a lot like this new reactive framework. So I'm hoping to take a closer look at that soon and see how I can reconcile the difference between what I've built and what the reactive framework delivers. Yeah, I've been watching the reactive framework too, but meaning to do a show on it uh, on .NET Rocks just because exactly that, it seems like a very interesting way to behave. It's a it's sort of a super state machine. Yep. So what's next for you guys? Where, where are you going with this thing? Is, are, will it become a product? It sounds like other folks would like it. I, I hope it will become a product one day. I mean, everybody I've shown it to is, you know, impressed with it and wants it for their home. You've got the issue of the sensors. It's it's hard to rewire a home to be as smart as this one. Yeah, um, I guess that's the biggest thing is, the you know, you put strain gauges on your beams. <laughs> yeah, I was doing a remodel, so I had the chance to do that. But, <laughs> yeah, most people won't have that chance. So what we need is a good sensor technology that can really tell if somebody's in a room. That will enable, you know, really good energy saving. But there's another piece of the system that I think I may commercialize sooner, which is the whole natural language engine. So I went looking for a good natural language engine for .NET, and there's, there's a bunch of open source libraries out there, mostly research projects from universities, and but none of them really worked the way I wanted it to work. They were kind of a static dictionary, and they could come back and tell, you know, this is this part of speech, and this is an adjective phrase or whatever, and it's like, well, great, but, you know, I'm talking about rooms and floors and sensors and um, actuators. I want to be able to parse that and have a strong type object come back so that when I ask, you know, parse for a room, I want a room object to come back and then I can act on that room and turn the lights on and off in it. Um, so I, I ended up building my own natural language engine, which is strongly typed. It has tokens that inherit from other tokens. So, you know, a, a room is a building area. And then it has sentences which you just build up, and you just build them up as methods. There's no, you know, big XML files trying to define the whole grammar that you can recognize. Right. If you want to add a sentence to it, you just add a method. Static method um, takes parameters that are the tokens that you wanted to recognize. So it might want to, you know, you want to say and then a phrase in a particular area of the house. You know, you have a token say, token phrase, and then a token room, and the parser will have parsed those for you, and then it'll find the sentence that matches that. You know, using reflection, it'll find all of those, build up a tree of all of the possible things you can say, match up what you've said with a rule. It's effectively a rules engine. Right. And then it will fire that rule and execute it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd like to see that in action. In fact, that sounds like a whole other .NET Rocks episode. <laughs> yeah. Another piece of that is the the whole date-time parsing, which turns out to be phenomenally complicated to when somebody says, you know, next Friday at 4 p.m., trying to understand an English language date-time expression and turn that into something actionable. So, um, yeah, that, that was a fun research project, if you like, figuring that out. And um, that actually hands off to you a link query that you can just execute against SQL. So you can actually ask my house, who called last year on a Friday? And it will come up with every caller ID record from last year on a Friday. Nice. Um, you can even say who called on a Friday. It can understand infinite date time ranges as well as finite ones. Or you can say, remind me in 20 minutes to you know, get ready for the show. 
That's very cool. Yeah, interesting. And I, and it's so there's a bi-directional speech interface. You're talking to it, and it's talking to you. Yeah. And the, the other thing none of these natural language engines had was this concept of a conversation. Yeah. They would, you know, parse one sentence, and you know, here's the answer. It's an adjective phrase, blah, blah, blah. Mine will actually be able to track a conversation. So, uh, for example, it spoke to me when you called, and it told me that uh, British Columbia, some other number, was calling. I can now just type, you know, it was .NET Rock Show, and that will take that caller ID record and change the name on it. So oh, that nice. if you ever call again, it'll know who's calling. Cool. But um, and it, you know, if it was too far back in time, it would go, well, did you mean the call from 604 at you know, 9.30? Right. And, and then they can just go, yes. Well, it's the idea of maintaining context between the commands. Yeah. doesn't seem like that innovative idea. Why did you have to think of it? I don't know. I, maybe there's one out there. Maybe one of your listeners can tell me that, hey, somebody else has done this and I can go use theirs. But I couldn't find anything that could have a conversation. Interesting. Hey, Ian, it's really been great to talk to you, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you again. I hope so. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, Get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as you type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum Dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Wow, that, <laughs> it's, just, it, it, it's just amazing. First of all, I'm thinking to myself, how much free time does the guy have? You know? <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm thinking, if he doesn't monetize this, he's crazy. Yeah. Well, and of course, interesting for you as a judge, you judge this without being able to talk to him. You had to just look at the application. That's right. And I had the advantage of of having a conversation with a fascinating guy and and an obviously an interesting technology. I'm really excited. I want to lay hands on it myself. Yeah. Me too. But, I you know, I'm I'm wondering if, you know, if he makes it available. Yeah, well, and I think we should make a whole .net rocks episode about it. We should. That. We got to invite him back. Yeah, very interesting topic. And I hate to have one contestant sort of steal the show for us personally because this is really a personal reaction. From yes. my part, the other apps are, are equally interesting. They're just different. That's Home right. automation is just a soft spot for me. Well, you know, and it was for me too. And, you know, he got a, he got a 10 for uniqueness when I judged him. Business value, not so much, but, um, uh, so, you know, he, he did get a fair, a fair judging from me. Sure. So who is next, Richard? So next up is Ivan Andreev, and he's from St. Petersburg, Russia. So mm. part of the challenge, uh, was just getting a good call into St. Petersburg, which is a long way away. You know, yep. we, we think the world has gotten small. It's not that small. Uh, but a, a brilliant guy, a teacher, really, and his application focused around helping his students understand the power of the .NET framework. All right. Let's roll that interview now. I'm chatting with Ivan Andreev. The main point of the demonstration is to show ability to move from platform to platform. Uh, yes. Even can you describe the uh, the application itself, the Arkanoid game that you submitted to the contest? What does it look like? Um, there's a small rocket and a ball. A ball moves and hits the bricks. They disappear. Uh, the player has to uh, catch the ball with the rocket. Uh, so it fly away. Okay, so you're animating a ball bouncing back and forth. Does it knock out blocks? Oh, yes. Right. So you, you've got the, the challenge of the basic animation of bouncing back and forth. You've got to detect a collision on the block and make the block disappear. And I've just said, you know, as much as this platform is common, the, the rules around, say, XAML in Silverlight and around wind forms for doing that kind of collision detection should be quite different from each other. 
No, uh, actually, uh, all game logic, uh, what might be called physics and so on, is stored uh, in one project, uh, in in one file actually. Uh, only graphics, my UI, and uh, user input, collision detection, and other things are the same. Okay. Everywhere. That's cool. So your you sort of core logic, all that collision detection stuff is the same across all of them. It's just how you actually represent it on the screen. Yeah, that's true. And uh, so can you compare for me the, the the differences you found in working in, say, XNA to me seems like the most bare metal of the .NET development spaces. Uh, the, I would say arguably the hardest. Or Would you agree that, that XNA was tougher or is it XAML tougher? What do you like? I like XNA most of all. Really? Because I'm a good, yes, I'm a game developer and uh, I've created uh, an educational course about XNA in Russian. Um, so it's really easy for me and it's actually easy. Uh, I had problems with Silverlight the most because Silverlight had to be the subset of WPF, but it isn't, I think. Um, or it wasn't when it was Silverlight 1.1. Right, yeah. Uh, yes, I saw that I just uh, took my WPF project uh, and somehow converted automatically to Silverlight. But I was wrong. Yeah, that, that didn't work. And I, I don't know that it even works now in Silverlight 3. There's still enough differences between WPF and Silverlight. So did you end up having to do a complete rewrite to make the Silverlight version work? Mm, Something like this. Yeah. So, and did you actually get it to work in 1 or version 2? 1.1. Then it was renamed to 2.2. The version that you sent into the contest, was that Silverlight 3? No. It's the same Silverlight 2. Still in Silverlight 2. Yeah. It's impressive. I, I think a lot of folks struggled to make Silverlight 2 uh, build much of anything. It was a, a very early version of Silverlight. Yes, that's very hard, actually. Awesome, Ivan. Well, we're just about out of time here. And let me ask you the one more question, which is, uh, if you win the big prize, will you take the car or go to the Galapagos? I don't know. I think <laughs> travel is better. <laughs> you think which? I think travel is better. Travel is better. Travel- yeah, I like turtles very much. Oh, yeah. And the, I've been to the Galapagos, and let me tell you, it's an amazing place. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for talking to us, and good luck. I hope you win. Thank you. So what you didn't hear is part of that interview that we left out, which was where he sort of gave the history of it, and he's been working for a long time on a process to take an application and port it to every platform uh, all at once, Xbox, WPF, Silverlight, Windows Forms, every sort of graphics platform. Well, and Ivan talks about showing his students how he was able to actually, in an, in an hour-long lecture, migrate that app to one platform or the other, just really demonstrate the, the real strength of .NET, which was this incredible level of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he there was one category in the judging for cross-platform, and you actually got a number from 1 to 10 uh, based on, you know, how much your application was available on different screens. Right. And his was the only one that got a 10 for me. That covered that diversity. That's right. That that much diversity. Cool. Yeah. So uh, next we're going to talk to Amy Gardner. Yes. And Amy's down in South Africa. And so once again, we've got some audio challenges because that's a long way away from Vancouver. But uh, she had a really cool app and a di- totally different creature again, much more a business-centric app focused around uh, building reporting. I'm chatting with Amy Gardner. Amy, you're down in South Africa? Yes, I am. So what do you do in South Africa? Professionally, I create software. <laughs> and for fun, I love Ocean and Ocean. Cool. Uh, what sort of, are you a developer by trade then? You build apps every day? Yeah, I, I work for a company called Axis at the moment. They're a financial company, so I'm employed by them. Okay. And I create all their websites and their applications. Do you work on a larger team? There's a very small team of us. We've only got about three people at the moment. We were initially about uh, six or seven, but 
along the way, um, yeah, things happened and people left. <laughs> Folks come and go. So we're, we're three of us busy running all the applications at the moment. That's cool. So what does this application do? It, it came from the office world? It came from, yeah, it came from Word. Well, we added on to Word. And we created a report generator for our strategic partners to create reports for all of their clients, which show um, graphs and tables displaying all their data with all of their investments and how much they've invested and all their fees and all the transactions. And yeah, it's pretty cool. And you generated all into a Word document. That is neat. And so then you do you email the Word document off or they can be printed, whatever they want to do? Yeah, we, we've actually got a separate application um, which can be used as a bulk generator. So then, it, then um, once you've created your reports and all your templates using the application, you then use a separate system to go and bulk generate them. So we pull down lists of clients um, and we tell them, okay, we want to generate the in-context Word report for these hundred people, and it generates them, and it mails them off to them. So everything's automated. That's nifty, and yeah, it sounds like it saves a lot of time. Uh, how flexible is the reporting? Do you customize for each customer? Yeah, we do. For each customer, it's um, we we go and create whatever report parts they require, and then we just pop those into the new documents and some templates that they want, and it's done. And they get they get their reports. Yeah. yeah. Quite specific to the company, though, and the the business that we're in, it wouldn't really be usable for like the public or small companies. We don't, you know, but but it's very flexible for what we need. So, do the customers open up a Word document and it populates itself, or do they go to a website and then it generates the Word document? How does that work? Well, actually, what happens is we create the templates ourselves because um, we we've got. Um, We've got strategic partners which have, and, and they have their clients, and they tell us what they want, and then we create and create it for them. So we um, we have like two or three people that generate the subtemplates using the application that I've created. Okay. But we will be rolling the application up to the strategic partners so they can do it themselves. But we're still we're still um, incorporating OpenXML into the report generator, so it's going to be a lot faster because at the moment it's a bit tricky with. Using using Word as a server side generator. Word was not meant to be on the server. No, it wasn't exactly. <laughs> so this is this is a problem that we're facing. So we're we're busy changing that to use OpenXML. And once that's done, we're going to be running it out to to our strategic partners. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So what is the interop tools you're using to control Word like this? Interop. Well, we use, we use Office.interrupt to manipulate the documents. So, for example, doing pagination and um, table of contents and all, all those, and, you know, getting content controls and getting your IDs, all those kind of things we use Office Interrupt for. Nifty. And so you pretty much can insert anything you want into a document. You said graphs, I mean, images, text, tables, all that's insertable that way. Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of different types of content controls, image content controls, rich text. Um, yeah, the tables come, they, they get generated in HTML and get inserted. So there's a lot of flexibility around the different types of report parts that can get inserted. Excellent. So, Amy, did you look at stuff like SQL Server reporting services for this? Uh, we do use SQL Server reporting, actually. Um, that's, we've generated quite a few reports with that, but they don't... Um, yeah, what we actually wanted to do was change it so that we can insert um, SQL Server reports into the Word documents themselves. I know it seems a bit obscure, but at the moment doesn't, the, the reporting services don't quite cater for what we need, which is um, basically taking the old system, which generated HTML documents, into into Word. That's that's how we've done it. Wait, and not vice versa. Yeah, so you, you, you already were generating this HTML, you're just able to push that into Word and it just works. We're trying to do that same sort of thing. Reporting services wouldn't let you do that. Yeah, it was quite a legacy application that started way back in the day, maybe about five, six years ago. And when I first created it, it was actually an HTML report generator. 
COVID did is instead of creating it from scratch, we just um, altered it so that we could take the HTML and insert it straight into it. All right. And to do that with reporting didn't quite what we needed. So that's why we have a view SQL reporting for those specific documents we made. And did you originally do this with PDFs? Are you still using PDFs at all for this? We do use PDFs. There's an option to export PDFs. Okay. Um, that's definitely in there. But it's the, the ability for HTML to go straight into Word documents that have to have saved you a lot of work. Yeah, it definitely slows things down a bit. Um, we're also going to, that's also on our list of to do's. It's a bit way behind at the moment though. <laughs> but right. we're definitely going to get there. We're going to, we're going to, um, do everything straight into Word. We're going to take the HTML out, HTML section out completely. Oh, interesting. Okay. Just to simplify the translation. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a slow, um, process of phasing it all out. <laughs> How many of these documents are you generating in a day? Um, on a daily basis, uh, we probably generate about, um, I don't know, on a daily, on a weekly basis, it's probably about 100 to 500 reports. Okay. So it's not a, it's not a huge volume here. It's just a, it's complex what you're trying to do. Yes. Definitely. I mean, as, as the more, the more strategic partners and the more clients that come in, obviously, it's, it's going to get, bigger and bigger, and because we're going to be rolling this application out to our strategic partners themselves, um, that's going to obviously bring in a lot more more report generation too. Right. So if you win the contest, will you go to the Galapagos, or are you going to get the car? <laughs> oh, I think I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I think it's better to get the car. Really? Because because if you if you look at the value of the packages... They're considered to be both the same value. Right. But it would be, make more sense just to sell the car, buy a cheaper car, and then still have money left over to go on a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> you both of them. But the Galapagos is such an amazing place to go. It is. But I don't want to go to Indonesia, to be honest. Or oh. or Spoken like a true South African. All places right nearby you, really. Exactly. Well, Amy, it's been really fun talking to you. Congratulations. I hope you win. <laughs> All right. Well, that was kind of interesting, the reporting. Um, a little hard to understand because of the telephone connection. And it's, it's the closest thing we had to a sort of traditional business app that they right. actually have created this reporting solution that at the moment depends on Word on the server, which just gives me the chills. But now yeah. they're going to move over to OpenXML and still be able to generate Word documents, just not running Word on a server, which and we all know is bad. Actually, most of the submissions were business applications. You right. really only got to see the ones that the judges had narrowed down. But the, um, the, the, the majority of them were. Some were as simple as an access application, which was a, you know, battleship gray form with a button. You know, some were that simple. Obviously, they didn't get a lot of traction. But, um, and some were very complex, um, SharePoint sites. But we were looking for people to nail all of those different categories and rating them in all of them. So uh, it really averages out. You know, by the time we got to Amy's application, we had already sorted through a pile of others. Right. Well, there's our three finalists in the Judges' Choice winners. Yeah. And uh, I also have the People's Choice winners. So why don't we do the People's Choice winners first and then announce the Judges' Choice winners, and then that's the show. All right. All right. Have you got a drum roll handy? Here it comes. So in the People's Choice winners, third place, VJMR, and I think the MR is just to shorten up, which is probably a pretty substantial last name. And VJ built an ERP tool using the .name framework, that's ASP.NET, ADO.NET, some click ones and WinForms, to be able to build this tool to interact with an ERP tool that was originally built in Delphi really quickly. Yeah. In second place... Our good friend Max Kaffelman Rodriguez. Remember Max? We, I do. He was part of the the earlier show on my .NET story. Yep, that's right. And Max built the app uh, called Market Info System, which was all about being able to, to analyze point of sale data across multiple markets. Right. And our first place winner in the People's Choice, Ian Mercer, with the automated system for this house. All right, congratulations, Ian. 
So those were the People's Choice winners, and uh, and interesting to see that you know we, we hadn't planned on interviewing the People's Choice winners, and yet we ended up interviewing two of them. So I apologize to VJ that it worked out that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know what the people are going to choose. But that brings us to the judges' choices. Need another drum roll? In third place, in the judges' choice winners, Ian Mercer for his home automation system. Ian Mercer, congratulations, congratulations sir! That's the third place prize, and he's winning the. Uh, the, the netbook. In second place, Amy Gardner with the dynamic report generation. Congratulations, Amy. And that means in first place, Ivan Andreev from St. Petersburg for his uh, educational application showing multi-platform utilization and actually with a video game, Arkanoid. He's the first place winner for my.net story. Congratulations, Ivan. And uh, he did mention that he wants to go to the Galapagos Islands. So uh, while that isn't a binding decision right now, that's certainly what I imagine he's going to do. Hope he enjoys it. <laughs> Hope he enjoys it. Well, thanks very much for listening to us uh, talk to these people. And, and thanks to everybody who was involved in the my.net story contest. It was sure a lot of fun for me and for Richard as well. Wasn't that fun? Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.